We believe, in our tradition, in the Protestant tradition, we believe that Scripture, all Scripture, is the breathed out Word of God. That God, though He used human beings to record His words on tablets and vellum and papyri, God is the primary author of Scripture. Now, we don't believe that God caused His Word to be written down in the same way that, say, the Muslims believe the Quran was written down. We don't believe that God essentially uh, took over the, the bodies and the minds of those who wrote His Word. But instead, we believe that He used those men. He used their personalities. He used their minds. And so you can see distinct uh, differences between the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter. You can note those uh, distinctions as you read through. But no matter who the human author of any passage of Scripture is, it is God who is the primary, the ultimate author of Scripture. And as such, God is the one who decided what got included on the pages of Scripture and what was excluded. Now that's something to think about for a moment. But it's true. The Apostle John spoke of his own editorial process at the end of the Gospel of John when he wrote that he, didn't, uh, he hadn't told all of the stories about Jesus and the words that Jesus said because if he had, there wouldn't be enough books to contain all of the things that Jesus did. So John had to be selective in what he included about Jesus. He was, he was deliberate about what he included. He wanted to, his Gospel to be different than the other Gospels that had already been written. With that in mind... Then think about what we've read about David over the past few years. Well, we've been winding our way through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and now 1 Kings. Think about the details that God chose to include about the life of David that he might have that we might have left out. There are a lot of good things about David in those passages. In many ways, David is an example to us of how we ought to conduct ourselves. And for that reason. For better or for worse, for that reason, many have pointed to David. They, they say, see, look at David. Be like David. Follow David, David's lead. But there are also a great number of actions and words that had we been in charge of curating these books, we might have decided to cut those things out. They just don't quite fit. I just saw uh, yesterday, Rolled roll Dahl, uh, the 2022 version of many of his books have now been edited because things that he wrote earlier that were acceptable and found to be okay are now problematic. And so his publisher has decided uh, that things have to be edited out, replaced with things that are a little more fitting and acceptable and palatable to our culture today. Well, brothers and sisters, if we were writing the Bible, if we were editing uh, the books of First and Second Samuel, there would be things about the life of David that we would go, I'm just not sure that I want to include this. It might make people think less of David. You see, we want our heroes to be clean-cut men who don't drink or smoke or chew or go with women who do. That's just the fact of it. If you have a sports hero, how often have you been disappointed when you find out that there's a sort of a seedy underbelly to his lifestyle or her lifestyle? If you have a favorite actor or, or, or someone who you consider to be a hero and you find out they're not all that in their personal or private life, you get a little disappointed. And it's the same way with our heroes of the Bible. We want them to be perfect in every way. And so had we been writing about David, we, we would definitely have left out his sins against Uriah, his sin against Bathsheba, 
We would have left out the numerous wives he had. That's kind of problematic. We don't want to go there. We would have left out his bitter marriage to McCall. And even with our more recent heroes, whether they're superstars in sports, whether they're reformed theologians or pastors, we want to believe that they are perfectly virtuous and essentially sinless to the point that it's painful when we learn that they are less than perfect, when they are actually, as it turns out, just humans. And so there's a danger when we elevate the past heroes of the faith to a near sinless divine-like status because they can become like reformed versions of the Roman Catholic saints. And pretty soon we're making statues to them. Pretty soon, give us 100 or 200 years, we'll be praying to them if we're not careful. But there's also, and I think an even more grave danger when we elevate living heroes of the faith because their every pronouncement can take on a divinely inspired status. Well, the Lord does not do that with the so-called heroes of the Bible. We get a warts and all description of the people God writes about. Because as he says, he sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God knew what was in David's heart. And he included the history of the life of David in the history of the life of David. Many of the sins that flowed out of his heart. So that we might be instructed about how great God's grace is to sinners. That leads us to this thought that I want you to consider as we make our way through the sermon today. In the history of David's life, we are shown how awful David's sins were and how great God's salvation is. Let me say that again. In the history of David's life, we are shown how awful David's sins were And how great God's salvation is. The sermon, as usually is the case, has three parts, three points. The first is a man in full. The second, a type of Christ. And the third, a man after God's own heart. And again, I promise, I did not go and write this sermon after the adult Sunday school class. There were so many things that were touched on in that class that show up in this sermon, I promise you. I only changed one thing, or added one thing, but it wasn't... uh, It was a thought that occurred to me uh, during the Sunday school class, but not because of anything that anybody said. (laughs) I don't think. Uh, A man in full, a type of Christ, and a man after God's own heart. Those are the three parts of the sermon. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, a man in full. David is often spoken of as being an Old Testament saint, which for some folks might be hard to believe, given the number of egregious sins that we learned of during our time in the the books of Samuel and Kings. It's easy to believe that David was a saint if you have a sanitized children's storybook view of David's life. But when you take a close look at the man, when you look at what is told about him on the pages of Scripture, uh, as we've done over the past few years, it becomes hard to believe that somebody like David could be counted as a saint. And that's because the Bible paints a picture of David as a man in full. It doesn't tell us everything that there is to know about this man. But God did not hide the fact that David was a deeply flawed man who sinned in profound and heinous ways. But not just David. You see, God has a, well, we might consider it a nasty habit. (laughs) But God has this habit uh, with all of the major figures of the Bible of showing them warts and all, with one notable exception. 
And that exception, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as Hebrews 4, chapter 15 says, was tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he never sinned. Now, it's important for us to remind ourselves of that fact. Because in a strange way, we can elevate David almost to a divine light status in which he doesn't sin if we have this sanitized view of who he is. We can also diminish who Jesus Christ is. We, we, can, we, can, we can lower him down a little too close to our level, as it were. We can forget that Jesus is completely sinless. We can forget that he is the God who became man. That he never committed even a single sin while he lived on earth. Now, why do I point that out? Go to a few pains here to point it out. Well, according to uh, Ligonier's latest survey on the state of theology, the 2022 State of Theology survey, 43% of American evangelicals do not agree, do not agree, 43% do not agree that Jesus is God. How can you be an evangelical if you don't believe, if you don't agree that Jesus is God? 73% of American evangelicals affirm that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, if you're among the 73% who believes that, talk to me after church. <laughs> we'll get things sorted out. But suffice it to say, Jesus is not a created being. He is not a creature. He is God. He is God. If we think that Jesus is not fully God, if we think that Jesus is a being who was created by the Father, by God, then it would be easy to conclude that he isn't sinless. But the Bible clearly teaches otherwise. Jesus is the alone perfect hero of Scripture. He is the one, the only one, who got it right in every way, who never sinned. It seems that the American church is becoming increasingly comfortable with the false notion that Jesus is a creature rather than the eternally existent Son of God. But some of the church, in this strange paradoxical way, get really upset when it's pointed out what a terrible sinner David was. Now, there was a major kerfuffle a couple of years ago when some people started writing on social media that, that David raped Bathsheba. And people got really upset about that. They got really mad. And, and some of it was for exegetical reasons. And I get that. If, if that's the reason you would disagree with that statement, then okay, I, I, can, I can get behind that with you. But for a lot of people, it was simply because that was too far. That was too much. How dare you impugn the character of David by saying such a terrible thing. But David murdered a man. On his deathbed, David was telling his son to go after men who had done him some harm while he lived. He took so many wives unto himself when the Lord had specifically said that kings were not to do such a thing. We get very, very uppity when our heroes start to show some cracks. David, like Samson and Peter and Job and Paul, was a sinner whose sins were not concealed from those who read the Bible. In fact, God tells us that even descriptions of the sins of these men and other men were written down in Scripture for our instruction. 
And so that passage we read out of Romans 15, Romans 15, 4, it says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us, for our instruction. God wants you to know what a terrible sinner David was. Why? So you won't ever give in to the false notion that God just had to save David because he was such a good man. That's why. God did not have to save David. He chose to save David despite David's heinous sinfulness. And if he can save David, he can save you and he can save me. And that's the heart of the gospel. And so God intended for us to learn from David's mistakes, from his transgressions of God's law, but he also intended for us to learn about how, how magnificent his grace is by recording for us his love for David despite those terrible and heinous sins that he committed. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, a type of Christ. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, he writes this, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, from the context, you read a little further in that passage in Romans 5, and it becomes very clear that the one to whom Paul refers in verse 14 is Jesus Christ. He's contrasting Adam's trespass when he says in the following verse, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That one man, there's the word again, Paul is referring to Jesus Christ, Adam is a type of Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews refers to the entire Old Testament ceremonial system, including the Aaronic priesthood, as types and shadows of the heavenly things. And so what Hebrews indicates is that there are various types to be found in the Old Testament. But what is a type? We could say, well, a Lamborghini is a type of car. That's not what we're getting at in this particular context. In theological terms, a type is something in the Old Testament that foresignifies or foreshadows something that's coming in the New Testament. And so there are many types of Christ in the Old Testament, from Adam to Moses to Job. But one of the most significant and clearest types of Christ in the Old Testament was David. In many different and varied ways, David pointed forward to the coming of the Christ. So that when Jesus did come, his people ought to have recognized him as the son of David who would sit on the throne. That's why David was a type. He created a pattern. He instituted a pattern that the people should have recognized. And all of the other Old Testament types, they, they helped to, to further this pattern that people should have recognized when Jesus showed up. Ah, this is the one that was promised. David was a shepherd who rescued his sheep from many perils. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his flock and the shepherd from whose hand no one could snatch his sheep. David had a group of mighty, of mighty men who were a small part of a large army with whom he was very close, these mighty men. Jesus had his 12 disciples who were a small part of the multitudes of people who followed him around. David was a warrior king. Jesus is the warrior king who rules over and defends us, who subdued us unto himself, and who will defeat us, uh, defeat all of his and our enemies. 
David had a betrayer, Ahithophel, who after he had betrayed David went and hanged himself. Jesus had a betrayer, Judas, who after he betrayed Jesus, he hanged himself. David, after he was betrayed, passed over the brook of Kidron. Jesus, after he was betrayed, passed over the brook of Kidron. David was the anointed king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16.13 says that at the, at the same time that Samuel anointed David with oil to become king, the Holy Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. And Messiah, or Christ, means anointed. Now there are many other ways in which David served as a type of Christ. Far too many to go into here. But I think you get the point. If you're interested in more, Jonathan Edwards wrote extensively on typology specifically on types of Christ in the Old Testament. You can find his writings about this uh, on the Yale website. In one sense, we shouldn't reduce David to the point where his only purpose is to serve as a type of Christ. But in another sense, there's no higher calling than to serve as an Old Testament type of Christ. I think that David would be content with that role. I think David would be content knowing if if there was nothing else that he was remembered for, knowing that he served to point people in the Old Testament and in the New and in our day as well to point them to Jesus Christ. I think he'd be okay with that. Probably prefer that to us remembering some of the other things about his life. David pointed forward to his son who was greater than he. And there's a sense in which we too can serve as types of Christ. We ought to point to Jesus, to tell others about him, to show them the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. David's life helped others later on to identify the Messiah when he came. Our lives ought to help others identify the Messiah who has come and who will return. And so we too... And follow in the footsteps of David. If you want David as your example, there he is. That brings us to the final, uh, the third and final part of the sermon this morning, a man after God's own heart. We've considered how great a sinner David was. We've read how God said that he doesn't look upon outward appearances when looking at people, but instead he looks at the heart. And so how do we reconcile this with the fact that David is referred to as a man after God's own heart? God says this in 1 Samuel 13. He says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Now this is before David's anointed to be king. That happens a few chapters later in 1 Samuel. But these words are spoken by the prophet Samuel to Saul after Saul had offered an unlawful unlawful sacrifice to God because he had grown impatient waiting for Samuel to arrive. God was telling Saul through Samuel that he was rejecting Saul and that his house, he was rejecting his house from being king. God was going to put another man, a man of his own choosing. Saul was chosen by the people. God is going to choose his own man, a man after his own heart to sit on the throne of Israel. And so God knows what is in the heart of man. He tells Saul that he has sought out a man after his own heart and then he anoints David. Though he's an excellent king in many ways, he's a great leader of Israel's army, he still sins in heinous ways. And I think considering the chronological order is helpful for us to understand how these things can be. God is not bound by time. 
He knows everything that will take place before it ever happens. He knew before he chose David to be king that David would do terrible things. He knew at the moment that he said, I'm going to choose, I have chosen a man after my own heart, the exact things that David would do later in his life. He knew it. And still he said it. And so then I think we can say that God declared David to be a man after his own heart. God imputed this to David. He reckoned or considered David to be righteous just as Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. God did not say that David was a man after his own heart because in actual practice, David lived a perfectly virtuous life. And we can't say that God said this because David hadn't yet committed any of those heinous sins. God did not look at David and think, David is so great, I want that guy on my team. With him, we can win. We're going to go to the championship and we're going to win it this year. God knew what David had done. He knew that what David would do. And yet he still declared David to be a man after his own heart. God said this about David in part because David would be a type of Christ, but also and more, more importantly, because David, by faith, was in Christ. David believed God's promise. We see this specifically in the great hope that David had in God's promise that he was going to build David a house, that David's son would reign forever on the throne. And David believed this. He clung to this all the way to his death. And it was counted to him as righteousness. But more than that, more than David believing God's promise, God kept his promise to David. He kept it. He kept it even when David forgot God's promise. Even when David perhaps rejected God's promise for a time. God kept it. Now David is unique in many, many ways among the figures of the Bible. But at least one way he was also typical. Not of Christ, at least in this sense. He was typical of us. He was typical of us in that his faith was counted as righteousness. Just as we are. David was a sinner, but David was also a saint. Simultaneously, a man who sinned each and every day, but one who was justified in the sight of God. Apart from Christ, David would be suffering the torments of hell for eternity. But because he believed in Christ, he is with Jesus forever. I would encourage you, Not to take David's acceptance by God despite his sinfulness as a license to sin yourselves. David did it. I can do it too. David got away with it. This isn't the mark of a mature Christian. Instead, learn from David's bad example. Take comfort in the fact that God showed grace to him, but don't sin for the purpose of making God's grace abound. You see, when God included all of these ugly details about David's life, he wasn't doing so to glorify the sins that David committed. God wanted us to see the ugliness, the the heinousness, the rebelliousness of the sins that David committed, not so that we would go and do likewise. God wanted us to see these things so that we would know just how great God's love is for his people. That's why he included it. He didn't want you or me to start thinking of David as something greater than he was. As some sort of a demigod. This perfect sinless man who lived in the Old Testament. 
He wanted us to see David as a sinner who needed God's grace. David's sins were great. In the worst sense of that word, they were great. God's salvation is even greater. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, dear Lord, that your grace is greater than all of our sins. We thank you, Lord, that you don't simply sweep our sins under the rug. You don't simply ignore our sins against you. We thank you that you have dealt decisively with our sins. You have punished our sins. But we're grateful, Lord, that you're not punishing those who belong to you, who are in Christ Jesus. We are grateful, even though we say it through teary eyes, that Jesus Christ, your Son, was punished for our sins. We are grateful that you laid upon him the sins that we have committed. That he bore our sins on the, on the tree. We pray, dear Lord, that you would fill us with a great sorrow for our sins. And a hatred for them. We also pray, dear Lord, that you would help us, that you would fill us and help us to have great joy over the salvation that you have given to us despite our sins. We are thankful that you count us as righteous. We are thankful that by faith in Jesus Christ, you look upon us and you see men and women and children who have your heart, who are people after your own heart. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.